Good morning. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, open up to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, if you weren't with us last week, um, this TV right here, we're kind of beta testing some live translation uh, to take English words and to put them in Spanish. And so we're still figuring out the kinks with that, and it's going to take a couple weeks to make sure that that's uh, um, up to par with where we want it to be, but uh, at least this week you don't have to see two of me. So if you were with us last week, it was actually the live stream, and so you'd see me do this, and then like eight seconds later I'd do it again on the TV. And uh, so we eliminated that this week, which is pretty cool. So I appreciate Thomas and Pastor Joe and all their work to making that happen. Um, before we read Proverbs chapter 3, I want to just brag on God's activity here for just a moment. I thought it was pretty exciting. So yesterday for the second year in a row, our worship team was able to lead music at the Welcome Warehouse uh, back to school, back to Pack Drive. And so I believe they had between four, maybe 500 students come through yesterday to get backpacks full of school supplies. You guys donated 72 of those backpacks, which is pretty exciting um, in regard to that. But I also thought it was really interesting. So as our praise team is leading songs, talking about the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, faith in Jesus, um, a lot of people, they'd kind of not pay much attention as they were driving through. Some of them, especially if they were from a different faith background, you would see them roll up their window uh, because they didn't want to hear the music, which is okay, we understand that. But what was really interesting to me is that those that came from a Buddhist background, so you would notice in their car that they would have a little statue of Buddha on their dashboard, maybe some ash on their forehead from where they had been worshiping, they would actually stop, get out their phones, and they were, would record the worship. Or they would stop and like if the praise team was on a break, they would just sit there and wait until they would play the next song so that they could record it. They were very intrigued by the worship music and the message that our praise team was proclaiming. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, but the second thing, and this isn't an indictment on anybody, this is just for us to always remember why we started this thing. Um, I think we were one of maybe two churches at this whole event. Hundreds of people from varying faith backgrounds coming, and I think there may have been one other church there, uh, which is crazy. And it reminded me, I heard this years ago, that as a church, you have to remember there's three life phases a church can go through. You can be a mission, you can be a museum, or you can be a mausoleum, right? We start churches because we want to remain on mission. This church, we've said this many times, doesn't exist for me, it doesn't exist for you. We do love and serve one another, but the local church exists to reach one more person with the gospel of Jesus. And if you lose sight of your mission, what eventually happens is you just become a museum. What do museums do? You go and see things and you remember what was. And that's where you get stuck in stories of, do you remember when we did this? Do you remember when that happened? My Bible says in John 5 verse 17 that God is still working and I never want to be a church that just remembers when. I want to see his activity now by remaining a mission. And then the last phase a church can go through is you become a mausoleum where you just die because you forget the mission that God called you to. And so that was just a reminder for me yesterday that when the Lord opens up opportunities for our church family, let's make sure we're stepping into them to try to reach one more person with the gospel. Proverbs chapter 3, as we, uh, week number 2 of our series, The God Who Speaks, um, today, I'll be honest with you, may be a little hard to wrap our head around. It could be a little bit confusing, but I hope this is uh, encouraging to you and helpful for you. So stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. Proverbs chapter 3, 
We're going to read verses 5 and 6. These might be familiar verses to you. And God's Word says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways know Him, and He will make your paths straight. Let's pray together. God, we love you, and Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, would you continue to teach us, mold us, grow us, and shape us into the image of Jesus today? God, we don't want to leave here the same, so give us ears to hear from the throne room of heaven as we walk through many scriptures this morning. God, would you give us soft and receptive hearts, Lord, to take just a moment, and God, to give our full attention to the scriptures God, we don't want to just hear your word. We want to receive it and then do something with it. So give us obedient hands and feet. God, not to just simply be consumers of the scriptures, but to be those that walk out what we say we believe about our faith. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Thinking about today's message, I remember about 12 years ago, Being in Nashville, Tennessee, I was on a mission trip with the youth group where I was serving as a youth pastor at the time. And not long before that mission trip was when God had called me to start a new church someday. I remember when I knew clearly that God had called me to start a church that some of the emotions that I was feeling, I felt unequipped for the task. I was incredibly young at the time, still am, thank you, I know I look so young, I was incredibly young at the time. I didn't have experience 12 years ago, and I was even questioning what the Lord was doing in my life specifically. But as we talked about last week, I am a firm believer that God speaks to us still through the Scriptures. And I began reading through the book of Exodus 12 years ago in my Bible reading time with a lot of those feeling unequipped, not um, having the experience and questioning God's call. And the Lord led me to Exodus chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, and this has served as an anchor for me in my ministry these last 12 years, where God said this to Moses. He said, who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And then look what he says to Moses. Now go, and I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And through that, those two verses right there, God was confirming with me that he was calling me to this very specific task. And so what did I do as a young kid? I started looking for where God would have me start a church and not when God would have me start a church. I was asking the wrong question. So there in Nashville, I were at a worship gathering at this mission trip, students all over the place, and they had played this video right before the message, and it was a church planting video. And right when it came up, I thought to myself, God is going to speak so clearly right here in this moment. He's going to tell me exactly where I need to plant a church. And across that video screen came a bunch of facts, statistics, and a call for churches to be planted in all places. You ready for it? Canada. And I remember in that moment leaning over to Elizabeth, I believe we were doing the timeline, she was my fiance at the time, and I leaned over to her, surely been called to church planting just a few weeks before, knew I was going to start a church, and I was asking God, where am I supposed to go? Not when, but where? And I saw that video, it was the first thing I'd ever seen at church planting, and I leaned over to Elizabeth, my fiance, and I said, I think God is saying we're supposed to start a church in Canada. And my fiance didn't say yes. <laughs> she didn't say no. 
But to make a long story short, I'm pretty glad I didn't go to Canada. And I'm pretty glad that I didn't start a church in that moment in time. I was thinking this week, can you imagine me, Aaron Taylor, running around playing hockey, putting maple syrup on everything, and being like, hey guys, how are you, eh? You know? It's like, I'm just, I'm not built for Canada. Like, I can't do the cold. I'm just not built for that. But here's what I'm a firm believer in. This is what we're talking about this morning. I believe that God wants to speak to us through our circumstances. I believe that the circumstances of your life are a way that the creator of the universe wants to speak to you and he wants to speak to me. But here's where we have to be so careful. We can read him into our circumstances. We can make our circumstances say what we want them to say to fit what we want our life to be like. We said last week, if you weren't with us, I'd encourage you, as time permits, to get on our podcast or go back to our YouTube page and and to watch, but we laid some foundation for this idea of the God who speaks. And we said last week that the primary way that God speaks to you and me as, as children of God is through the Word of God. The primary way that God speaks to you and me, the foundational way that God speaks is through the Scriptures. How does God do that? We said last week that primarily it starts when we're saved by Jesus, Ephesians 2, verse 8. Once you're saved by Christ and your sins are forgiven, the Bible teaches in Romans 8, 16, that you're now indwelt by the Spirit of God. And once you're saved by Christ and dwelt by the Spirit of God, we then begin a journey of learning to listen for the voice of God from the Scriptures primarily. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we looked at this last week, that all Scripture in verse 16 is inspired by God, meaning it's literally breathed out onto the pages of Scripture by the Creator of the universe. And it's not just breathed out and written for us. Paul goes on to tell Timothy that it's profitable, meaning that it serves a purpose in your life. What's the purpose? To teach you, to rebuke you, to correct you, and to train each one of us in righteousness. Why? So that we may be complete and equipped for every good work that God calls us to. So when God gave us the Scriptures, the complete authority of every word and deed of how we live the Christian life, He did it to speak to us and to tell us how we're supposed to live. And sometimes when God speaks through the Scriptures, it's very general. Sometimes you'll read the Scriptures and you'll just simply see things like sins in your life that you need to confess, habits you need to form, changes in your life that you need to make to align the way you're living with the way that Jesus calls us to live. The Scriptures are very unique because it's the only book that when you open it, every time the author meets you and is wanting to speak to you. Yet at times, the Bible is also clear that God will speak to us very specifically through His Word. That when we're approached or um, confronted with major life decisions, that the Lord will speak to us very clearly from the Scriptures as well. I shared with you last week, not to beat a dead horse if you weren't here, but about a a recent uh, job opportunity that my wife and I were praying through. And the Lord spoke to me very clearly through Romans 15, verse 20, not to build on another man's foundation, but God had called me to do this. But in addition to that, God's primary method of communication to you and me is the Scriptures. Yet the Bible is also clear and provides ample examples that God will also confirm what He is saying through His Word through other avenues. God will confirm the Scriptures through circumstances of life. God will confirm the Scriptures through other believers speaking truth 
into your situation. God will confirm the scriptures through your prayer life as well. While the scriptures are the primary means of communication, they're the foundational means, other avenues that God uses can confirm and uh, support what God is already saying to you through the scriptures. And we're going to explore those over the next few weeks. But let's talk about circumstances. Our question for today, if you're a note taker, I'd write this down, is how do we listen for God in our circumstances? In, In the good things that come your way in life, how do you listen for God? In the bad things that come your way, how do you listen to the voice of God speaking to you? How do we discern what God is saying to us in our circumstances? Because here's what the Bible's clear on. You can turn here if you want to. I'd circle this verse in your Bible if you haven't yet. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, verse 11, that, that uh, all things, all things, good and bad, work together and in agreement with the will of God. Meaning that our God is sovereign. If you don't know what that word means, it means he's in control of all things. Meaning that God is also sovereign over every circumstance of my life. And he can use and chooses to use the circumstances around me to speak to me. But how do I listen for him in the midst of this? I want to give you some questions, two of them today, to ask yourself uh, kind of in conjunction with the scriptures. Scriptures are primary, circumstances are always secondary. But questions to ask yourself to assist you in discerning God's voice through your circumstances. Questions to consider in good seasons, we love those. Questions to consider in bad seasons, one of the greatest spiritual disciplines that you can develop as a follower of Jesus is looking for and listening for the voice of God when life is pretty terrible. Ephesians 1.11, God is sovereign over everything, good and bad, meaning he doesn't just speak to you in the good, he speaks to you in the bad. In those everyday moments and major life decisions when we need to hear God, how do I discern his voice? Three questions, or two questions to ask yourself. Write these down if you're a note taker, put them in your phone. Number one is this, in my circumstances, what is God doing in me? Through what I'm experiencing, what is God doing in me? Last year, we studied through the book of Galatians, verse by verse, for several weeks. And we, we talked about this word several times in that book, this word sanctification. It's the process in which the follower of Jesus is becoming more and more like him. Galatians 5 was a big chapter on that. You can read about that later. Simply meaning, it means that as a Jesus follower, you and I were always works in progress. And that God uses every facet of my life, good and bad, to forge you and to forge me in the image of Christ. First John 3, verse 2 talks about that. One way he does that, the Bible's clear, is through our, our circumstances. Do you know God does not waste anything that you have ever gone through to mold you into the image of Jesus? One of the, the, the most uh, um, difficult theological concepts for us to wrap ourselves around is that God is sovereign over good things and bad things at the exact same time. We don't like that as Christians. But the Bible is so clear that, that, that God is And that if God is that sovereign and that in control, he chooses to use the events of your life to mold you into the likeness of Jesus. Let me give you a couple verses to support this. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. Here's what James says. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, that's you, that's me, whenever we experience various trials. Pause. You ever want to slap a Bible author? Here's the moment for you, right? Trials and what does James say? Consider it joy. (laughs) We talked about this a few weeks ago. Happiness and joy are different things. Happiness is based on my circumstances. Joy is based on my position in Jesus. I'm a heaven-bound saint 
who used to be a hell-bound sinner, but because of the finished work of the cross and what Jesus accomplished for you and what he accomplished for me, I can be joy-filled. I don't always have to be happy, but I have a fixed hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And even when life is difficult and trials seem to be surmounting all around me, James says, be joyful. Consider it joy. And here's what he says. This is where this is so important, circumstances of life. Because you know, you know, you can have confidence in this, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. You could write next there, right there next to verse 4 that you would be molded into the image of Jesus. God uses my trials to do that. Paul says it this way, Romans 5, 3. And not only that, listen to this. You can't hit Paul, though, because that's probably going to get you in a lot of trouble in heaven. But look what he says. He says, and not only that, but we boast in our afflictions. Imagine that. Paul says we boast in our afflictions because we know, he's echoing what James said, we know that affliction produces endurance. What does endurance produce? Proven character. What does proven character produce? Hope. Both of these guys point to this reality that God uses the difficulties of my life, the adversity of my life, to change me from the inside out. So we have to begin asking the question when we're in those seasons of difficulty and adversity, although this is happening around me, what is God doing in me? When challenging moments come your way, and I know so many of you are experiencing them right now because you've talked to me about them and we're praying for you and we fully hear these things that are, they're just hard. I hear you with that. But understand this, that the Bible echoes this so loudly that they are not without God's sovereign purpose in your life. That no matter what is occurring around you, God is growing something in you. He is molding you and forging you into the image of Jesus Christ. But it begs the question too, does God only speak in my adversity? Does God only speak in the difficulties of my life? C.S. Lewis, he was the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read those books or seen those movies. He said it this way. He said that God does whisper in our pleasure and joy, but, our, uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. God whispers in our pleasure, but he shouts in our pain. God speaks loudest through adversity. That's very true from the scriptures. But God also speaks of the joy in life too. He speaks through those things. You've heard it said before that uh, it's often, if you want to see a Christian grow the most, you don't grow the most on the mountaintop, you grow the most in the valley. I've heard that before. When God wants to grow something in us, many times he's going to do it through difficulties, not joy-filled circumstances. But he speaks in both. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, 28. We know that, I want you to underline and circle this in your Bible, all things. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things. Paul says good things, God uses. Bad things, God uses. Joy-filled things, God uses. Sorrow, he uses. To do what? Work something out in us. But it comes back to that original question, what's he doing in me? With what is occurring around me, what's God changing in me? Let me give you a few things to consider when you hit those seasons of life, good and bad, to just ask yourself as you're seeking the voice of God in your circumstances. I use these in my life personally when I'm, I'm journaling and seeking the Lord through scripture reading. Ask yourself questions like, is there a sin in my life that I need to confess? Uh, is there a fruit of the Spirit that I'm not embodying in living? Is there a way through what I'm experiencing that I need to be trusting God more? 
Is there someone in the circumstance with me right now that I am positioned to share the hope of Jesus with? Is there godly character in my life that still needs to be developed? Hear me, and I know this can be hard to swallow, and some of you are all like, I don't like a God like that. Hear me, God does not waste any circumstance of your life. He is sovereign over everything. And what he's teaching you in the scriptures can be confirmed through what you're experiencing in your circumstances. I like illustrations. Let me give you an example of this. I shared with you again last week, Romans 15, 20, what God was speaking to me personally in the scriptures. But there were other scriptures that God used to confirm that I was supposed to stay at Living Hope Columbus. One of those scriptures, I I read a proverb a day. I know some of you have that habit as well. So I'll read a scripture passage and then I'll read a proverb a day. There's there's 31 proverbs, so you can read one for every day of the month. It's a great habit to develop. Um, Proverb a day keeps you from being stupid is the old adage, okay? It's the wisdom book. So it was the third day of the month, and I was reading Proverbs chapter 3. We just read, read verses 5 and 6. Proverbs chapter 3 says this, and I'm, I'm just praying, just seeking God. Lord, am I, am I supposed to go? Am I supposed to stay? What are you doing in my life? And I came across Proverbs chapter 3, and I felt like this just jumped off the page, and Jesus was like, this one's for you, bozo. Read this and circle it. And here's what it says, Proverbs 3, 3. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. And what God was speaking to me and I journaled down in that moment was God was saying, stay faithful where I put you. I can show you right here in Proverbs 3. I'm not lying. It's right there next to verse 3. I wrote two words, stay put. And then I wrote the initials of our church, LHCC. I'm not making this up. I wrote stay put right there. God was speaking to me so clearly. Aaron, don't you go anywhere. I'm doing something special with you here. You need to stay put. That same week, I realized, and this is an indictment against Aaron Taylor, that this is the longest I have ever served at one single church before. I've served this church because we started it for four and a half years. I've never served at a church longer than three years until this one. Do you know the average length of a lead pastor of a church in America right now? It's three years. Do you know why that is? Because in three years, is when very unique, hard things and good things happen in the life of a church. They say once you get to year four or five is when you cross this threshold where two things can happen in the life of a pastor. So let's, let's just Aaron bear his soul to you. Some are like, you seem like you're whining. Well, stop it. Joe will beat you up. I'm not whining. I just, I just want to be honest with you about this stuff. I, don't, I try to be very transparent in my leadership. Two things that happen. First off, once you hit year to four to five at any church, you officially become the pastor of that church. You know why that is? Because after four to five years, people actually begin to trust you, and they believe that you're going to stick around for a little while. They trust you. Statistically proven. We could, we could do the research on it. Here's the second thing that happens. Once a pastor stays at a church four to five years, he's actually been able to lead to that church long enough that it actually starts to become healthy. He's been there long enough where it actually starts to become healthy, And it starts to become what God intended for the local church to be. And I reached about that four-year mark, and I'm thinking to myself, this is getting a little bit hard. Things are challenging. People aren't vibing with everything that we're doing. People have left a little bit. We've lost families over this last year. That's okay. Our church isn't for everybody, and I'm okay with that. There's a lot of great churches around Northwest Columbus that we could connect you with. But that's hard, and that can be challenging. 
But God was very clear from the word, primarily, stay put. Let faithfulness never leave you. Stay put. And you know, within a few weeks, I said, Lord, I'm going to trust what you say in your word. I'm going to do what you told me to do. If God speaks something to the scriptures, make sure you're obedient to what he told you, by the way. And you know, it was just a few weeks after that, that we ordained eight deacons at our church with a unanimous vote. I'm going to tell you something. If you guys didn't know this, we're a Baptist church, by the way. Um, Baptist churches don't have unanimous votes about anything. It doesn't happen. That's just the truth. For some reason, Baptists are notorious. It's like, should we have a potluck six months from now on the second Thursday? And there's always that one person that's like, no, that, the devil told you to do that, preacher. Like, don't do that. Every Baptist church I've ever served in has been like that. We ordained eight deacons with a unanimous vote, which absolutely blew my mind. Those deacons have been in that position for three months. And I'm just here to tell you all, and Joe would echo this from the rooftops, I don't know what we did without them, and I don't know how we survived before them. Those men do more for this church behind the scenes that you will never know about, but there is a record in heaven that's being kept about how they're serving the people of this church, and it is mind-blowing. I wouldn't have seen that if I left. I wouldn't have seen it. I think about just some of the other things going on in the last few months, how people are stepping up in unique ways and serving and helping in ministries and things are being forged and formed, uh, people loving and caring for one another in such unique ways. And here's what I've learned. And again, this is just me overflowing and sharing with you. Much of what I preach is just from the overflow of what God has already taught me. I would have missed so much of that if I didn't listen to what the Lord said, first through the scriptures, and then I got to see it in my circumstances. God was simply confirming to me what he had already told me. Stay put. Because I didn't know this until this morning. This never struck me until this morning. If you go in Proverbs 3, I was reading through this passage again this morning. Look at what, what Solomon writes here. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. Stay put. Be faithful. Look at verse 4. Then. If you do those things, then, what does he write? You will find favor and high regard with two folks, God and people. What did I just tell you? That typically if a pastor stays put long enough that people begin to trust them actually as their pastor and you get to see a healthy church start to be forged and formed. Favor with God and favor with people. God is so clear what he wants us to do in his word. And if we would just obey him and trust him, we would start to see him in our circumstances around us. We would see it everywhere. What's God doing in me that's now being informed what's going on around me. Here's that second question. This folds into it really nicely. Number two, what is God doing around me? These are so simple and elementary that it might be a little bit frustrating, but these are great spiritual disciplines to develop to ask yourself these questions. I don't know about you. When I think of God's activity around me, I, I tend to get tunnel vision. Like I, I put these blinders up. I know you all do this too because we've had conversations. I've dealt with some of y'all. And you just get like tunnel vision on like this is my thing. And this is the thing that I'm focused on. Like, this is, this is my thing right now. That I get so focused on, like, these one things that I miss God's activity around me. I get so focused on, like, the tip of my nose that I can't see what's going on around me. And one of the most liberating verses for me years ago was this, John 5, verse 17. If you've ever done the Experiencing God Bible study that I encouraged you about last week, you've read this verse. But let me give you a little context surrounding this. In John chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem by an area known as the Pool of Bethesda. It was an area outside of the temple 
where every day several disabled people would come and they would be laid there um, to beg for money and hope to be healed. These were blind people, lame people, paralyzed people. Legend was that if you were laid by this pool, that occasionally an angel from heaven would come down and stir up the waters of this pool. And if you were the first person around that pool to get into the water, that you would be healed. Here's a little fun fact for you. This is going to throw some of you off for a loop. If you look in your Bible in John chapter 5, you're going to notice, depending on the translation you have, that your Bible probably goes John chapter 5 verse 3 to John chapter 5 verse 5. Verse 4 is not there. If you have an earlier translation, I think like the King James Version and some of those, verse 4 is there, and it talks about the angel stirring up that water. You're like, Aaron, how come that was left out of my Bible? You probably didn't notice that before. Typically what happened is some of the early manuscripts of the Scriptures, they were unable to agree on whether that was actually in the early manuscripts of the Bible. And because it was a thing of legends, often modern Bible translators said, you know what, this doesn't affect the story, we need to just pull this out because we can't verify if this was actually in the original text of Scripture. But that was the legend, that was what went on there. If the angel stirred up the water and you were the first person laying around the pool, blind, lame, uh, paralyzed to get in the water, you would be healed. You say, Aaron, that's crazy. When you're desperate like these people were, some of them for several years laying by the pool, you're willing to try anything. So they would lay there day in and day out, hoping that they would see the water stirred and they could jump into the water or have somebody put them in there really fast. You imagine being the paralyzed guy? Like that would be very terrible. But even this guy says, my friends couldn't get me in there fast enough, kind of a thing. Now, here's what's interesting about this story. Jesus approaches the pool of Bethesda. He sees this one man there, that one man who was paralyzed, and the Bible says that he looks at him, and Jesus tells him, you need to get up and walk. So what's the guy do? He stands up. His ankles are made strong again. He picks up his mat, and he begins, like, dancing and walking. I'm just telling you all, if I was paralyzed for a couple of decades, laying by this pool, totally hopeless, man named Jesus comes up, says, get up and walk, and all of a sudden my ankle started to work, I'm not just going to stand up and walk, I'm about to dance, and I'm Baptist, right? We can't dance, y'all see me try to dance, but we're just going to get down. One of y'all is going to start playing the spoons, and we're just going to go crazy worshiping the Lord. That's what this guy does. He's excited, he's pumped, he'd been there forever, totally paralyzed, but Jesus says, get up and walk, and he's like, okay, But here's what's pretty crazy. It was the Sabbath. It was supposed to be the day of rest for the Jews. Jesus heals this man. The guy gets up and walks. Religious leaders come trotting by the pool of Bethesda, and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you picking up your mat? The guy's like, because 10 minutes ago, I was over there laying, not able to do anything, and now I'm healed. And here's what the religious leaders say. Um, it's the Sabbath, the day of non-working. You can't pick up your mat. I know some of y'all. Some of y'all would have ripped off your shoe and thrown it at the, you know, the, the priest or something. I mean, just a crazy situation. So this dialogue begins there, and the Bible actually says that the Jews there in John chapter 5 began per- persecuting Jesus from that moment over his violation of the Sabbath. But all that to be said, John 5, verse 17, Jesus makes an incredible statement in verse 17 in regard to the Sabbath, but this is a very general principle for us in regard to the character of God. I want you to see this. John chapter 5, verse 17, you're going to underline this, you're going to highlight it, you're going to circle it, whatever you got to do to remember this verse. Jesus responds to them. You ready for it? My Father is still working, and I'm working also. Your Bible translation might say something like this. My father is always working, and I'm working also. The verb construction there is for us to to understand 
that from the beginning of time that God has never stopped working. That's a continuous action verb. That when God started working in Genesis 1, he has never stopped. Throughout human history, in our current world, and in the future, God is always working, and he has not stopped. What's the reminder for us from that scripture? Again, it's about the Sabbath, but it's a general principle that's proven true in the scriptures as well. You ready for this? When life is good, when life is bad, what's the reminder? God's still working. You hear that truth? Some of y'all need to hear that because life just is terrible for you right now. God is still working. And on the authority of Scripture, God's still working. When God feels absent from your life, John 5, 17 reminds us, he's not absent. When, when it feels like God is doing nothing around you, John 5, 17 reminds us, he's still doing something. So get in the regular spiritual discipline of asking yourself this question, what is God doing around me? Because the Bible tells me that he is always working. He's always working. In the midst of all of my circumstances, he's doing something. From what he's teaching me in the scriptures, he's confirming in the circumstances of my life. But here's what often happens. Sometimes, this is very important, these two things, sometimes God's activity around us is very evident, and you can see it. I was thinking about it this week with the story of of, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, where the hand and the activity of God is so clear An angel comes to Philip in Acts chapter 9, verse 29, tells him, go to Gaza. He arrives there, Ethiopian man. He's a eunuch. If you don't know what that means, ask your mother later, okay? Ethiopian man's in a chariot reading Isaiah chapter 53. Philip shows up, and what's the Ethiopian man say? Can you explain this to me? Philip explains Isaiah 53, which was about Jesus. The man ends up getting saved. He says, what's preventing me from being baptized? He gets baptized in that moment. Here's the reality. We all have seasons and moments where God's activity in our life around us is so, so clear. And when you see those things, just keep walking in obedience. For us as a church right now, we're seeing that in the Finding Hope Center. God diversifying our church family so rapidly. We're developing partnerships now on a national level of people who want to hear about and get involved with what God is doing. It's the hand of God, and I've been saying this more recently, we're caught in a wave of grace right now that is so cool, and you can see God's hand and his activity so clearly. But other times, write this one down because I feel like, man, somebody needs to understand this today. Sometimes God's activity is so clear. Sometimes what God is speaking in your circumstance is only understood in reverse. Sometimes what God is speaking to you in your circumstances is only understood in reverse. It can only be seen in reverse. Think about Joseph in the book of Genesis. As a young man at the age of 17, the Bible says in Genesis 37 that he was given a series of dreams that someday he would be the ruler of his entire family. A few verses later, a few days later, his brothers then sell him into slavery to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites then sell him to Potiphar. Then one day he he says, all right, I've got a dream that I'm going to be the king and ruler over my whole family. Next day, what's going on? He's sitting in a jail cell in a foreign country. Where was God in that circumstance and in that moment? The Bible says that Joseph, throughout the book of Genesis, from Genesis 37 through 50, worked his way up in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife then later comes in, accuses him of an inappropriate relationship with her. He's thrown in jail again. So he'd been in jail once, he worked his way out, she accuses him of something that he didn't do, he's thrown in jail again. Where's the hand of God? Where's God's activity in his life? Genesis 40, 
another prisoner that he had been locked up with, helps him get released from jail. And the guy says, when I get out of here, I will not forget you. I'll get you out too. But what's happened? He was forgotten then by his friend. What was God doing around him? Because he sure couldn't see it. You study Joseph's life from Genesis 37 to verse 50, three words seem to describe him. Unfair, unreasonable, and God sure seems really distant in what he's doing. But then you get to Genesis 41. The Egyptian pharaoh has a dream. To make a long story short, Joseph is called up to um, interpret that dream. Because he does so rightly, he's positioned to be the second in command over Egypt. He begins to store food for a famine that was coming and ends up being able to rescue his entire family years and years later from that famine. Then Genesis 50, verse 20, this is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. His family shows up. Man, they're fearful. They're afraid. Joseph now, completely on the other side of years of circumstances, not knowing what God was doing in the moment, but now he sees it in reverse. What does he say? You planned evil against me, but God planned it. Man, that's a big word right there. God is sovereign over everything, good and bad. That's important. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. For Joseph, the circumstance in the moment made no sense. He couldn't hear the voice of God. Where was he in the jail cell? Where was he when he was sold in slavery? One of the greatest truths I think that we can see in the story of Joseph is this, is that what God could be allowing in your life now is preparation for what he's going to be doing in your life later. Don't miss the preparation in this season. His voice might not be clear right now, but know he's still working in your circumstance. My pastor in Marysville used to make a statement similar to this. He said, the scriptures always remind us that when we cannot see the hand of God in our life, we can still trust the heart of God. Right? What did Proverbs say in chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 as we close? Trust the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Your understanding and my understanding is so skewed, so messed up. But we seek to know him intimately, Solomon says, and he'll guide us then on straight paths. There's times where God's activity will be abundantly clear, and sometimes you will not know right now what he was saying until later on in your life. And you'll look back. I heard people saying it this morning in our church. I didn't know what God was doing three years ago, but now in this season of life, I fully understand why I had to go through that. Sometimes God's voice is only heard in reverse. But friends, remember, we can trust him. I understand fully that sometimes discerning God's voice through the circumstances of life can be very difficult, and there's so much more we could discuss regarding this. But let me just echo again, always weigh it against the Scriptures. If your circumstance doesn't align what God has already revealed in His Word, then your circumstance is wrong. The Scriptures are always true. But I believe with all of my heart that the Scriptures show us that my circumstances can often support what God has already told me in His Word. What's he doing in me? What's he doing around me? The word is always primary. Everything else is always secondary. And they remind us of this truth too because I know with some of the difficulties that people are experiencing now that maybe you're asking questions like Joseph asked, where's God? Why was he doing this? Why me? Why now? And one of the things we do is we start to question God. I think of Romans chapter 9, the potter and the clay. Who am I to question my creator? Who am I, the, in, the finite mind of man, to question the infinite mind of God? 
But I also remember this, that in those seasons of life where things are hard, one of the things we tend to do is we question God's love for us. Does He really care for me anymore? Does He really care? Because it sure doesn't seem like it. Can I remind you of the cross? (laughs) Whenever you question the love of God, just look back to the cross. Because His love for you was settled there. Jesus' love for you and his love for me was settled on the cross, and you never have to question his love for you again. The Bible teaches over and over, Romans 8, 28, he's a good father that cares for his kids, and he seeks your good. And sometimes to get you to the good that he's trying to get you to, you've got to go through some bad. And sometimes we don't understand the sovereign mind of God. That's okay. What's Proverbs 3 say? Trust him with all your heart. My pastor growing up, and I'll close with this, He told us this almost every Sunday. He said, so many of us have so many questions for God, and we think to ourselves, man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God this. I'm going to tell God this. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind because I don't understand why all of this happened. And my pastor, John Becky, used to say, he said, you know what we're actually going to do? He said, you're going to close your eyes in this life, and you're going to wake up, and you're going to be standing before the throne of glory. He said, I believe with all my heart one word's going to come off the mouth or off your tongue. It's going to be this. Oh, And then you'll hit your knees and you'll worship for eternity. God's sovereign and we can trust him. Can I pray for us as our praise team comes? God, we love you so much. God, would you take your word and implant it in the hearts of your people? Use it, Lord, to to mold, forge, and grow us into the likeness of Jesus. God, we believe so much that you're a God who still speaks. God, I pray that we would put in the work And put forth the effort to seek your voice and to know your voice and to discern your voice. God, we would do that primarily from the word of God and let everything flow from there. God, I love this church. I pray that you continue to work in each one of us as we're pursuing Jesus. And God, now as we sing, I pray that our voices are a sweet sound through the corridors of heaven joining the echoes of angels in Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6, giving you the praise you deserve. We love you so much, God. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.